a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for becoming a part of our audience. I hope you're a regular listener. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, I make it very simple to do so. Right at the bottom of my show notes, which I publish every day that I do the show, you'll find a subscribe link. There's another little link there, and I'm just going to ask you to take a second look at it. If you listen to this show, and I'm, this is a big if, but if you listen to this and you say, huh, I kind of like the cut of this guy's jib. I like the way that, uh, I like what you're sharing here, Brian. I want to ask you to consider becoming a supporter of this program. And here's why. Uh, I mean, people can donate 99 cents a month, four ninety nine, nine ninety nine. There's uh, there there are a number of people who have very generously reached into their own pockets and they, they make a monthly five dollar donation or so to keep me on the air, to keep me focused on what uh, what I think I do best, which is you know finding and and sharing uh, relevant, uh, credible content with you. So your generous donations allow me to focus like a laser beam on this rather than having to uh, go and work you know other part-time jobs and side gigs to keep the wolves away from the door. I'm not in dire straits, I'm not desperate. I'm just saying it's very helpful and greatly appreciated and and I treat every donation as sacred funds that uh, that are used to promote the message of liberty and understanding of the world around us. So consider it. There's a place there you can click and become a patron of the show. I think I've gone on long enough. Welcome. We have so much to talk about. I sat back yesterday and uh, just marveled at the uh, Reddit versus Melvin Capital saga featuring GameStop stocks. If you haven't followed this, it's it's kind of a tough thing to summarize in in you know unless you're if you're fluent with you know terms like you know short sales and a short squeeze and a naked squeeze this these are all terms you know for those who who trade in stocks and if I had to sum it up as simply as possible there are a bunch of uh, hedge funds and the the managers of these hedge funds will look for stocks of businesses that that are in decline. And they manipulate the market to drive the cost of those stocks or the value of those stocks down. And these, these traders, these, these hedge fund managers, by manipulating the market, will borrow <clears throat> stocks. They don't actually own them. They borrow them, and then they, they drive the price down, sell them. And anyway, they pocket the difference. So they, they, make, a, they make a pretty nice bit of money through manipulating the market. A nice bit of money, I mean, they make billions of dollars. And it's all perfectly legal. You know, this is just, you know, this is one of those things that, uh, that financial geniuses understand. And they know how to manipulate the market. But here's the thing. When they, when they borrow those stocks, they borrow them with the understanding you have to buy them back at some point. And their gamble is when they buy back those stocks, the price is going to be lower and so they're they're going to uh, they're going to be making some money 
you know, when they turn around and, and, and buy those stocks back. So it's, it's, I'm no, I'm, I'm not making a lot of sense, but there are others who can make a whole lot more. Bottom line is they messed with the wrong crowd. GameStop is very popular among the, uh, the uh, young people, especially the, the folks who are really into video games and very computer and tech savvy. And there came a point where people recognized, hey, these guys are trying to, <clears throat> they're trying to drive our, uh, they're trying to drive GameStop's stock into the ground so that they can profit off it handsomely as this company goes on its way to insolvency or maybe bankruptcy. And apparently, there were a lot of uh, members of a Reddit subgroup that that took offense to this and started buying up GameStop stocks with their own money. And in doing so, when, when they bought the stocks, that means the demand goes up. That means the price of the stock goes up. And, and here's the kicker. Those uh, hedge funds, in this case, Melvin Capital, has to pay the higher price. They, I mean, they have to. It's, they, they agreed. That's part of it. And so it ended up costing them billions of dollars. They, they were very concerned about this. I believe it was uh, earlier this week. They borrowed a couple of billion dollars from another hedge fund, you know, just, just because they're, they're looking at like a 26% interest rate and, and it compounds on them and just gets exorbitantly expensive. And so what happened is uh, Melvin Capital essentially was driven to the point of insolvency. I mean, this cost them well over $13 billion. And again, it's a bunch of the little people turning around, using the the rules or using the system itself against the people who normally profit from it. Okay, that's a story in and of itself, all right? That's that's somebody put a wampin on these uh, hedge fund managers. And by, there was a couple others. I think AMC, they were trying to do it on there as well. But the, the kicker is what happened when that trading started to, to go south for these hedge funds? They ran crying to government. And, I mean, I can't think of any, any other thing that would, what would stop trading in the middle of a trading day, but that's, what, that's exactly what happened. Trading was stopped. Uh, one of the companies, Robinhood, through which uh, these uh, Reddit users were buying the stocks of GameStop, they, uh, uh, they actually told them, okay, here's the deal. You uh, can no longer buy any more stocks, but you can sell what you have at least of, of, of GameStop. They totally changed the rules. They, they completely, in fact, at some point, they started automatically selling off the, the GameStop stock held by these, uh, these uh, Reddit users. I mean, there's a class action lawsuit that's been filed. It is fascinating. And what do you, how do you make sense of it? I mean, because look, on the one hand, it sounds like, okay, so a bunch of geeks, you know, people who love video games are, are uh, you know, sticking it to the man. You know, is this, is this Occupy Wall Street just uh, operating at a whole smarter level? I don't know. But I know this, and I, and I agree with, uh, with Glenn Greenwald's ass- assessment, one of the most interesting and potentially significant conflicts to happen in some time, not just financially, but culturally and politically, has just taken place. I saw a number of people make the comment yesterday, this is historic. And, and I don't know if that means in a good way or a bad way. Maybe, maybe they don't know either, but this is historic for what it's done. 
And so I'm going to be linking to, and this is in the show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com, I'm linking to a video that Glenn Greenwald did yesterday in which he explains this remarkable series of events that culminated in at least one major Wall Street hedge fund on the verge of insolvency and widespread anxiety and even panic from the titans of the financial system. And it was all initiated on a subgroup of Reddit known for its heterodox interest in stock markets, video games, and vaguely populist politics. By the way, the media is laying this all at the feet of Trump. This is Trump. This is Trumpism with a little white supremacism or white supremacy mixed in. So purposely targeting the stock of a company that had long been written off by Wall Street and which short sellers had decided to ravage, the video game retailer GameStop, these small investors, apparently working class or uh, debt-ridden, banded together to drive up the stock price of that company into the stratosphere, abruptly leaving the hedge fund short sellers with billions of dollars in lasted. They were hoisted on their own spears, so to speak. Glenn Greenwald says, although it may be more complex than this once all the facts are known, this is being treated by those excited by it and those aghast as a type of populist uprising, a David versus Goliath tale in which ordinary people united to brilliantly beat Wall Street at its own game, thereby transferring plutocratic wealth back to the public. Oligarchs and their media spokespeople spent all day on CNBC and other pro-Wall Street outlets expressing outrage demanding government intervention to protect them from what they regard as a grave injustice, you know, because it's being done to them. Now the subreddit's been banned by at least one platform on the highly suspicious ground that it was due to hate speech and not the use of this group to sabotage Wall Street billionaires. What a remarkable coincidence of timing, Glenn Greenwald says, that this subreddit's hate speech suddenly crossed a line exactly as hedge fund managers were demanding their heads. Now, the page apparently continues to appear on Reddit itself. So he's created a video to discuss what happens or what's happened and what the implications are. It's fascinating. He tries to explain the key components. He tries to highlight some of the most consequential implications. I would encourage you to find some time to watch this. And, and, and contemplate what this is telling us about the financial system. I know it's a painful truth to consider. I know this is hard. This actually hurts to, to contemplate. But people who have wondered, you know, is the system rigged? I think they just got an answer. And the answer is, yeah, it's, it's rigged. Well, in whose favor? To which I would have to say, mm, not yours. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. I really hope I didn't do too bad a job, or, you know, I hope I didn't butcher things too badly for the whole GameStop and Reddit versus uh, Melvin Capital. But today could be a very interesting day. And, and if nothing else, I, I think a lot of people for the first time may be actually starting to question, hey, wait a minute. I thought that, uh, you know, the banks and the big finances, the big financiers and so forth, uh, I thought that government, they were all supposed to be working for us, right? They work with us and they work for us and they, they work in our interests. And, 
you know, it's it's like George Carlin said so many years ago in, in one of his uh, comedy routines. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. And that's uh, that's apparently becoming true. Now, I don't know. Some people may still be clinging to the idea, no, 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 this is all fine. Everything is fine. But the mask has kind of slipped. And that kind of leaves us with uh, with some decisions to make in terms of, okay, how how invested do I want to remain in a system that is looking out primarily for its own interests and doing so at my expense and other people's expense? You know, one set of rules for thee and another for me. That, by definition, is what uh, aristocracy looks like. Now, maybe you think that's a good thing. You know, hopefully if you're on the side of the aristocracy, if you're part of the privilege, yeah, absolutely. Hey, it's a great thing. If not, hmm, what do you do next? And then there's also the issue of of, uh, big tech censorship. And I know this is on a lot of folks' minds. Dissent is being silenced by big tech censorship, by deplatforming. And with this comes an opportunity. I know it's, it stinks to see people who, you know, I think have something worthwhile to contribute to the great conversation going on around us. But, you know, we, we relegate them to the margins. We push them back into the shadows. Something about that doesn't seem right. And at the same time, here's the opportunity. It definitely provides a place where some innovator can step forward and change the game by or change the rules of the game, rather, by creating a new service. Thomas Luongo, in a piece published on LewRockwell.com, asks the question, when Facebook censors Ron Paul or Twitter bans President Trump, is that censorship? Or, because these are private companies, does that automatically make it not censorship? Amazon banned Parler, but is it their right as a private company to choose their customers? He says, that's the crux of the issue I need to address address with you in today's post-Trump world of social media. He says, because make no mistake, big tech repression is a foundational problem facing any society that considers itself even somewhat free. In the wake of the allowed assault on the Capitol and the confirmation of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the U.S., the big tech firms which control access to speech went ballistic. Conservatives, along with President Trump himself, were wiped from the public square. Any mention of the election being stolen or open support on Twitter of Trump himself was flushed down the memory hole. Now, Tom Luongo says that censorship of the highest order by these firms to put parameters around political speech in the U.S. where such a right is enshrined in the Constitution. None of it is constitutional. But the problem is far deeper than that. He says the deplatforming of Parler, one alternative social media program to Twitter via corporate illusion by Apple, Google, and Amazon, was something far more sinister than Twitter silencing the sitting president of the U.S. He says this was a blatant hit job by companies stifling competition in the public square for hosting material which is constitutionally protected as free speech. But these firms, especially Amazon, who terminated Parler's server hosting agreement with 24 hours notice, lazily applied their vague and ever-changing terms of service to single out Parler and hide behind their status as a private company. Now, Thomas Luongo says the worst part about this is that libertarians see this as a rational and defensible free market action. And for years, adolescent libertarian arguments about corporations being private actors preferable to governments now have been turned around by authoritarians who hang us with our own words. 
And we wonder why conservatives look at us, why we have four heads when we make such arguments. He says, when this attack on free speech began during the 2016 presidential campaign with the first deplatforming of alt-right provocateurs like Richard Spencer and Andrew Anglin of the Daily Stormer website, it was obvious then that these were dry runs for the mass action we're seeing today in the name of creating an information-free, literal, one-party police state. It was this that prompted former Silicon Valley programmer Andrew Torba to start Gab. Crazed liberals then said, well, if you don't like Twitter, leave and build your own. So he did. And after the attack on the Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018, Gab was given the even worse treatment than Parler got last week. But they survived that. All the while, he says, myself and people like Torba were screaming about the duopoly, controlling the on-ramp to the mobile web, and nobody cared. But we could see the day coming, and now it's here. But he says, this is most certainly not a private property issue as much as it is a contract law issue allowed to fester because of government interference into the marketplace for communications. Government interference altered the landscape these companies operate in. They grew to the size they are now because of government largesse and federal and state tax revenue into the networks and systems they depend on. It doesn't matter that the duopoly is Google and Apple. It could have been Palm and Microsoft or BlackBerry and IBM. What matters is that the environment wasn't a level playing field between the companies and the people using the services. They were paying not only for access, but at the same time, subsidizing the revenue streams by accepting costs these companies outsourced to government. It's a cozy arrangement. He says the companies outsource their fixed costs and the government outsources their censorship desires that pesky First Amendment forbids them from doing directly. No wonder the response to the allowed assault on the Capitol was so swift and coordinated. Think it through, folks, he says, Amazon's AWS doesn't become a dominant player without those vaunted contracts with the CIA. Parler, at a minimum, should have an expectation of service per any legal contractual agreement, and as such is due damages from Amazon for unilaterally breaching that basic trust. Facebook doesn't grow to become the monster it is without strategic investments by quasi-governmental companies like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Google doesn't become the ad revenue generating machine if it had to properly pay its bandwidth costs for the content they forced on us. Trump nixing net neutrality put some of that onus back on them, giving ISPs some latitude to price usage according to their needs rather than Google's. But he says all of the above companies, including Microsoft, have been chosen by our government to succeed in this tilted marketplace. Apple doesn't dominate the mobile internet in the U.S. without all those user fees and taxes tacked onto the cost of your monthly cell phone bill. If these companies were operating on their own private satellite and wire networks, then they would absolutely be in the right via the application of private property rights to set whatever terms of service they wanted. And Thomas Luongo says, I, as a libertarian, fully support that. And also, as a libertarian, understand that public property always creates a tragedy of the commons scenario. But he says, when you operate in the public sphere, when you move your goods and services on the digital equivalent of the public road system, not a digression he wants to get into today, and your complete charter exists within the framework of U.S. and state contract law, well... 
He says it's clear that these companies are neither wholly private entities with respect to their customers, nor neutral actors trying to enforce public decency standards. They are acting in their best interest to stifle competition. Gab, parlor, mines, etc., while setting precedents to allow for further restrictions of speech through lawfare, I like that term, thanks to a complicit and fully cowed legal system. And herein lies the smart path to reining them in, if it is at all possible. Since it's clear the Biden administration is ready to reframe all speech critical of the U.S. government as domestic terrorism, giving all of these companies the legal justification in the future to unperson all dissent. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. He talks about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, but he also talks about the opportunity for the next great innovator. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Monticello College, also by Alta Bank and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. You'll find links to each of these sponsors in the show notes. You can actually uh, connect with them directly, even if you just want to drop them a quick note and say, hey, thanks for sponsoring the show. Sure appreciate you helping keep Brian on the air. So I'm sharing this article from Thomas Luongo, Only You Can Beat Big Tech Censorship. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, it's you have these companies, the big tech companies, acting in what they consider their best interest to stifle competition and also setting precedent to allow for further restrictions of speech, which it looks as like it's going to be really likely they're going to be doing this even more since uh, under the guise of fighting domestic terrorism or extremism, these companies are being given the legal justification in the future to unperson anyone who dissents from whatever the U.S. government is doing at the moment. Now, Luongo says removing their Section 230 immunity under the Communications Decency Act is paramount, but he says it isn't going to happen now. The government is in on the grift, folks, so looking ahead to the 2022 election cycle isn't an option. Besides, he says they just prove to you your vote. They prove to you your vote doesn't count. So it means hitting them in the only place they truly care about, that is their bottom lines. So the first thing to do, he says, is to sue them into the ground. It will be up to the people themselves to hound these companies through both contract law violations and shareholder revolts because they've done irreparable damage to their brands and their future revenue streams. This is what has to happen right now. Parlor sued against Amazon, that's a good start. A class action lawsuit by every small business in America now wondering about Amazon's policies should end this nonsense quickly. A good judge in a sympathetic jurisdiction should side with anyone making a strong case that modern tech company terms of service are contracts of adhesion, defined as contracts entered into where one party is so much stronger than the other, the weaker party is in effect coerced into signing it. The second thing is to simply jack out, put the screen down. Stop using it as a substitution for real communications and pull back from the, brink, from the brink. I like this term he uses. He says, de-Google your life as I have. Close your Facebook account permanently. And he says, you'll feel better immediately. Trust me, I did this two years ago to the detriment of the marketing efforts of my business, and I've never looked back. 
If you need a social network, use Twitter for keeping tabs on things, but save your thoughts and your content for Gab or other smaller private communities that you're a part of. Being a global citizen is a canard they sold us as some true net positive, but it was something designed wholly to drive us mad and deracinate us to the point of having no home, no culture, and no real friends. And so he says it's no wonder they're trying so hard to shut off the escape routes and only allow certain platforms to exist, forcing us to interact with people we don't like while locked in our homes over a wholly contrived public health emergency. In other words, he says it was always part of the globalist plan. Ending this starts with the very libertarian idea of simply opting out. We don't need to be plugged into their reality, generating nightmares every moment of every day. But he says the thing about the web is that it's built on protocols which are themselves censorship resistant. So the tyrants of today will be the footnotes of tomorrow. We've seen early attempts at censorship-proof blockchain platforms like Steemit. It's still running, even though its growing pains nearly killed it. He says the next great service is just around the corner because necessity is the mother of innovation. But he says the first step is accepting the fact that they've won this round and now it's time to change, now it's time to change the rules of the game. Kind of like that. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's just the rebel in me that's, uh, that's uh, you know, leaning that direction. But the, the part about unplugging, and that means really, you know, turning off that digital media. I, that would include, you know, not listening to me or at least not accessing me on social media. But if it leads to greater freedom, then do it. If it leads to a better understanding of the world, do it. I'm just not convinced that for all the information we have flowing at us, you know, 24-7, that people really have much of an idea of what's going on. Just because so much of the information that's given to us is pretty thoroughly worked over by the time it gets to us. Now, if you're serious about becoming propaganda-proof, you're going to have to come to grips with needing to unplug from much of the digital media. In fact, this would be a really great time to discover the value of reading great books. Jeff Minnick, writing for uh, intellectualtakeout.org, had a great article about this, and I love that he starts out, it's called, There's More Than One Way to Burn a Book. He's quoting Ray Bradbury. And the world is full of people running about with lit matches. Now, Bradbury wrote the novel Fahrenheit 451 about a world that systematically burned books. He says, in, Jeff Minnick says, In late December, I resolved to try and read more books than those I review for Western North Carolina's Smoky Mountain News. So he says, I settled on a book a month, six old and six new, though he says I may change that proportion in favor of older books. He says, I just finished Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, which I found difficult at first but soon came to enjoy. In those pages, I was surprised to discover themes about harsh government, ambition, and cultural destruction pertinent to our time. Next up is Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel about anarchists and radicals, The Devils, also known as The Demons and The Possessed, depending on the translator. He says, my own translation is that of Constant Garnett, who long ago brought so many Russian authors, including Tolstoy, into the English-speaking world. Wanting to compare her translation to more modern ones, Jeff Minnick says, I set off for the public library, donned the required mask, and looked on the fiction shelves for good old Dostoevsky. Nothing. Nada. No The Brothers Karamazov, no Crime and Punishment, no Notes from the Underground, and definitely no Devil, no The Devils. 
Looking at the library's catalog, he says, I found the brothers Kamarazov and the idiot were checked out. A couple of the other Russian, of the Russians' other books were available on audio or on e-audio book and CDs. But he says, the day before this disappointing excursion, I received the following email sparked by another article I'd written about books. Here is part of what my correspondent had to say. Quote, I was a public school librarian for 26 years. I blame myself and the American Library Association for throwing away the old books. We were taught in library school that it was bad to have a collection older than X years, depending on the subject. So we threw out the old books and replaced them with teen angst, near porn, cataclysmic nuclear war, and now drag queens reading LGBTQQRSTUV literature at any time. I apologize to you and all bibliophiles. We didn't burn them. We just threw them away because the standards told us to, end quote. Jeff Minnick says, though I know the meaning of the first four letters of that 11-letter alphabet soup, he says, I want to reassure this woman that I understand why librarians must remove some older books from the shelves. It's just a question of space. As for what books the literary world is pushing at teenagers these days, he says, well, that reading list might explain their high rate of depression and the feeling among some people that the world is coming to an end. But he says, my understanding of discards ends when I'm looking at the D shelf in the library and I see no books by one of the world's most celebrated writers. Someone has checked out the two novels owned by the library, which is good news for our culture. But shouldn't this bastion of civilization have all of Dostoevsky's novels and stories in its print collection? He says, well, this absence may simply be negligence on the part of my librarians. Others take a less benign stance on disappearing certain books. In our world of cancel culture, we see lots of people running around with lit matches and cans of kerosene ready to set a fire, metaphorically, any book that offends them. Books like Huckleberry Finn and Sounder to irreversible damage the transgender craze seducing our daughters are condemned for their failure to conform to contemporary prejudices, removed from school reading lists and, in some cases, physically burned. One Massachusetts teacher recently tweeted, Very proud to say we got the Odyssey removed from the curriculum this year. And Jeff Minnick asks, why this disdain for one of the world's greatest classics? Is the reading too difficult for today's students? Is it irrelevant? Did the teacher object to Homer's portrayals of manhood, honor, and warriors? Does the faithful Penelope grate on today's feminist sensibilities? He says, this teacher and others like her are robbing our children of their heritage. We may laugh or grouse about the ignorance of so many of our younger citizens who can't identify Jane Austen, our enemies in the Second World War, or the Bill of Rights. But he says, the fault lies much less with them and more with those who taught them. Of all the methods of conveying our civilization, painting, sculpture, music, and architecture, surely the written word must rank as the engine in this train of culture. Books were the transmitters of tradition and thought, and they remain so today. Whatever our political persuasion, liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans, libertarians, most of us recognize the literary achievements of the West and the need to honor them and keep them alive for future generations. He says the nursery rhymes of Mother Goose, the great fairy tales and poetry, the plays of Shakespeare, novels and short stories, histories and histories and biographies, the books of philosophy and religion, political tracts like our Declaration of Independence and Constitution. These are the heart of our civilization. And he says only we can keep that heart beating and healthy. He says I'll start by having a kind word with my friends, the librarians. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to warn you right now, you may want to pull up a chair. Do you have a friend to drive you home? <laughs> okay, because uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay some pretty serious wrong think on you. To get to it, you're going to have to go to the show notes. And I just, I saw this this morning. A friend of mine, Brad Green, uh, shared this with, uh, with a number of friends. And I like how he, he just says, look, this is a really interesting read. It's from Pat- Patrick Byrne. I think he's the CEO of Overstock.com. And the bottom line is this. If the 2020 election really was as cut and dry as we're being told, would there be a need for all the MSM spin, all the social media censorship? I'm thinking no. I'm thinking you wouldn't hear people like George Stephanopoulos having to make the assertion that there is no other side. You know, it's... it's uh, I mean, maybe we're all starting to appreciate what Galileo was going through in his day. Only the 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 Church of State in our day is uh, is you know kind of an unholy alliance of media, politicians, special interests. But uh, boy, someone is working so hard to convince us. Well, you know, of course, you know, everything has been certified and everything has been sorted out. All I know is. There's a lot that was going on behind the scenes that most of us were not privy to. Patrick Byrne has written about what was going on behind the scenes with the team that was supposedly out there trying to prosecute the case or at least to uh, to bring the case into the light of day for how Trump was uh, how how the election was was manipulated and how Trump uh, needed that day in court. And I'm not going to spoil it for you. I want you to I I would encourage you take a look at it. There is a link in the show notes at the com. And I will echo the words of my friend Brad Green, who shared it with me. I make no assertion of its truthfulness, only that it seems plausible and has not been given the opportunity to be proven or disproven. And I think that's a very healthy way to approach this. It's not a matter of, oh, I know for a fact the election was stolen. I don't know that for a fact. But I don't for a minute believe that it was ever given a fair hearing. And when you read what Patrick Byrne has written, and by the way, it's a very lengthy read. This is something, if you're, if you're interested, you may want to tackle it as part of a weekend project. But it was very revealing to, to read about some of the behind-the-scenes things that were taking place. And suddenly, how could, you know, all of these pronouncements, oh, we're releasing the Kraken, oh, we've got all this evidence, tons of it. How could that fall so flat? How could Giuliani and uh, others fail to make their case? You should read what Patrick Byrne has written because he was very much a part of this effort. And uh, like I say, you, you'll have to make up your own mind. But I think the idea that, uh, you know, Nothing has been proven or disproven at this point. A lot of things have been asserted, but there really hasn't been a fair hearing. I think that that stands. So I would encourage you, take a look at it and see it for yourself. All right, final note we're going to end this hour on. Um, there's talk about student loan forgiveness, and, and I, I don't blame politicians for wanting to make, uh, you know, such a magnanimous move. I mean, come on, this is, look, look at the favor I'm doing. Come on, give me a hug, you. I'm going to forgive your student loan debt. And I'm sure somewhere in there is the implication, but just remember, you owe me. 
because <laughs> I don't think they would do it without without you know some, expecting something in return. Well, uh, Words and Numbers hosts Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan have uh, put together a very nice article for the Foundation for Economic Education, and they explain there are some serious unintended consequences that really need to be considered before we embrace such a move as forgiving student loan debt. Because there will be big losers, and it's going to be the future students and taxpayers. Their article says, given American voters' penchant for delivering divided government, it might seem strange that Democrats were able to wrest control of the White House and both houses of Congress in the 2020 election. And while there will clearly be a power-sharing agreement in the Senate, the Democrats find themselves in an enviable position, one that they've used to great effect in the past. The last time a Democratic president had majorities in both houses of Congress, we saw Barack Obama take control of the legislative agenda to push the Affordable Care Act through. The ACA passed with the vote of only one Republican. That's An Kwong Joseph Cao in the House, though Democrats really didn't need his vote, and without any Republican support in the Senate. Not often does one party dominate the political landscape such that it can pass legislation at will, But the few examples that exist provide a telling look at what a united government might be expected to yield in our own time. Now, we've seen a number of big-ticket pieces of legislation since 1935, laws that have changed the very fabric of the American political life by empowering the federal government well beyond its constitutional limitations. In addition to the ACA in 2010, Social Security in 1935, Medicare in 1965 were also implemented when Democrats had control of both the White House and Congress. Given the results of the recent election, it should come as no surprise that we're poised for the next big expansion, student debt forgiveness, a promise Joe Biden made frequently as he campaigned for the presidency. Like the big ideas that came before it, this idea will cost us more than we can afford from day one and far more than its proponents will admit. Biden's plan, as currently envisioned, would cost over $300 billion. But that's just this year. The plan will set in motion unintended consequences that will doubtlessly persist for generations. First, next year's crop of new students will, understandably, demand that their loans be forgiven too. And so will those of the year after that, and so on. This program will quickly become a sort of college universal basic income where the government just hands out $10,000 to every college student. Now, some argue that if this results in a better educated populace, then it's worth the cost, but it won't result in a better educated populace. It will result in a whole bunch of students majoring in things the market doesn't value and another batch simply taking a four-year vacation on the taxpayer's dime. Heretofore, graduates knew they needed marketable skills in order to repay their college loans. But when student loans are forgiven as a matter of course, graduates bear no cost for wasting our collective resources by studying things the market doesn't value or by not studying at all. Second, colleges and universities will respond to this new reality by raising tuition commensurately. Tuition and fees were a pretty constant 18 to 19% of family income from the 1960s till 1978. In 1965, the federal government started guaranteeing student loans. In 1973, Congress established Sally May and charged it with providing subsidized student loans. And by 1978, tuition and fees had started a steady march to 45% of family income today. When the government makes it less painful for students to borrow, whether by guaranteeing, subsidizing, or forgiving loans, 
it takes away some of the pain of student borrowing, which makes it easier for colleges and universities to raise tuition. Third, expect many taxpayers to cry foul. Homeowners will quite sensibly wonder, well, why is the government not forgiving their mortgages? After all, student loans add up to about $1.4 trillion, while American mortgages total more than $16 trillion. If relieving students from the burden of their debts is a good idea, it should be an even better idea to relieve homeowners of theirs. What about students who worked multiple jobs or attended less prestigious schools so they could avoid going into debt? Why aren't they being rewarded? What about students who diligently paid off their debt and are now debt-free? Will they receive nothing? What about, fantastically, people in the trades? Is it reasonable to charge people via the higher taxes loan forgiveness will bring who did not go to college to subsidize those who do? Regardless of the answers to these questions, implementing this plan will be fraught with difficulty. In the end, say James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies, there are three big winners in this scheme. Universities will have to raise their prices even more because students will all of a sudden have extra money to pay. Students who took on gargantuan levels of debt will be able to force their fellow citizens to pick up the tab. And finally, politicians will buy votes by appearing to be magnanimous with other people's money. Now, the big losers are future students who will see tuition spike yet again, working-class Americans who suddenly find themselves stuck paying for other people to go to college, and taxpayers in general who will be, as always, left holding the bag. I'll have a link to this in the show notes and encourage you to uh, take a close look. And, and, if, and if you get the chance to, please subscribe to the Words and Numbers podcast. These guys have a really solid take on what's going on. And you don't even have to agree with them on everything to come away feeling better informed and better equipped to uh, face the world as it is. So just a quick shout out here to my friend John Staples with Alta Bank. If you are in the state of Utah, if you are looking to purchase a home, if you are looking to refinance your existing mortgage, I want you to go to the show notes at the com, and I need you to get on there and contact my friend John Staples. It's just there's a nice little link down there. It'll take you right to Alta Bank. Do it while the interest rates are ridiculously low. I'm dead serious. <laughs> you really should you should really consider uh, taking advantage of this while you can. John will walk you through the whole process. Thanks again for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. Don't forget there's another hour of the show posted for podcast as well. This is the Brian Hyde show.